what's going on everybody welcome back to a thousand cuts a bsa podcast i'm your host demetrius here with my co-hosts victor and chanel victor is new to the podcast victor say what's going on to the people man introduce yourself a little bit you a new face on the pod well the new voice excuse me on the pod say what's up to hey what's people, happening i'm a little disappointed i, I, I assumed uh, we were on the video but yeah, I'm Victor. I'm a member of Black Socialists in America. I'm a uh, blogger, essayist, uh, historian. Glad to be here. And we are happy to have you on. Yeah, I wish we could do video, but I, not everybody got a webcam, man. I ain't got a webcam. I need to give me a good quality webcam so everybody can see, you know, my open pores on my face. But our guest for this episode is Lucas Kwong. Lucas, say what's going on to the people. Give us a bit of introduction about yourself and what it is that you do. Sure, Demetrius. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's good to meet you and Chanel and, and Victor. And I'm really happy to be on here to talk about my work opposing Christian nationalism and anti-Asian racism in an international context. I don't get asked to situate what's happening in America in the context of PRC, the PRC and its history, but you know, insofar as I've been circulating an open letter opposing the anti-Asian racism of major Christian nationalist politicians, you know, I do believe strongly that an internationalist perspective is necessary because nationalism is, after all, the problem. So I'm happy to, to talk about that more, but that's sort of what's been occupying me these days. Yes, incredible work. I've been following you for a bit now. I was reading your writings and the Bias magazine, when you did a critique of one of evangelicalism's darling pastors, Timothy Keller. <laughs> and That's especially right. if you're if you're a fan of Christian apologetics like I was, you will know who Timothy Keller is. But He's maybe can, can you give us a bit of a summary of what it is that you're doing with your work against Christian xenophobia? Like, you know, just give us a bit of what that's all about. Yeah, so... Really, I see it as in line with the core principle of direct action, like rather than waiting for a representative, since our representatives haven't done anything, frankly, to face Christian nationalism and seeing Christian nationalism, specifically referring when I talk about Christian nationalism, it's not just your, your run of the mill patriotism, by the way, like this is a, a particularly aggressive yoking of patriotism, sort of God and country stuff with the idea that America's under threat from its spiritual enemies. And seeing this just explosion of anti-Asian hatred last year and realizing that it was incited by almost uniformly Christian, quote-unquote, self-identified Christian politicians, I started doing research. I wanted to find out what denominations they were in, people like Marsha Blackburn, Ben Sass, Mike Pompeo. And I ended up writing an open letter that sort of lays out each of 14 major politicians, their anti-Asian statements, which is not just limited to saying things like China virus, but also their denominational affiliations, their church affiliations, calling out them and their pastors, and calling for solidarity from anyone else who cares about opposing the incipient fascism that's in the American church, which Demetrius and I, we were just talking about. And ultimately, what I hope to do is call for solidarity in the form of 
withholding funds and ending partnerships with churches that will not or continue to refuse to discipline or confront the extremely influential bigots sitting in their pews. So that's been what I've been doing this in this summer. I've sort of been pestering different denominations like the Presbyterian Church and the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I've been called a, a communist sympathizer more than a few times, which I guess technically is not untrue, but probably not in the way that they mean it. So yeah, that's where I'm at. And that's sort of what brings me to talking about China here today. Yes, that's beautiful and pivotal work. The good old Christian slander of, hey, he's a commie, always helpful. But yeah, like Lucas said, we are going to be talking about the always uncontroversial, unproblematic conversation around Chinese politics um, today. That's right. So Lucas, so let's jump into it. Could you give us like a bit of a short history of the PRC and the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party? And also from like your point of view, what are some aspects of Mao's regime and the political legacy that he left behind that you think some leftists who, you know, may consider themselves Maoists or on the Stalinist side of things fail to realize in your opinion? Yeah, well, yeah, so I, uh, I should preface this by because I can already hear sort of like the, the hammer and sickle Twitter, like jumping on anything that I say. So this is going <laughs> to yeah. be a radically condensed history. <laughs> yeah. So spare me the, please, the, you know, you got this statistic wrong or whatever. But so, you know, if I could sum up the history of the PRC, it would be state capitalism reproducing itself over and over, you know, and I, I know that some people don't think that state capitalism is a thing. Of course, since I'm talking to, you know, y'all, you know, I think we can agree that just because exploitation of workers happens under the cover of a socialist state doesn't make it any less capitalist, right? So what happened in the revolution was that while land was expropriated and there was a, a radical repositioning of society that did take place in China, the actual social relations weren't destroyed. There is a term today called the princelings that's usually instructive. The princelings are the children, the next generation of the original cadres who fought alongside Mao in the revolution. And they immediately became the head of a, a new caste system. And already before the, the Cultural Revolution, it was clear that there were these huge disparities between the elites in the party and the rural and industrial workers. And that's sort of one of the ironies of Mao in that he's credited with this great innovation of we got to focus on the peasantry and not the urban industrialists. But really, he was responsible for the Great Leap Forward in which millions of agrarian workers died out of this ill-conceived desire to, as the name suggests, take the Great Leap into socialism, but without really dismantling those social relations. So you had this top-down structure where cadres were vying for pride of place in the party, leading them to drastically inflate their their expectations, right? And there was this very, very much a, a romanticizing idea that, well, the peasants, they, they just got to work harder. If they work hard enough, then we'll have socialism. So obviously, the, you know, that didn't work. And it was out of the response to the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution arose during the 60s. And I should stop here and say and acknowledge that the mystique of Mao is really generated in the 60s. And I think one thing that leftists need to recognize is that 
the mystique of Mao traveled outside China really before accurate information itself traveled outside of China about what was actually happening. And what was happening was that Mao wanted to, you know, he wanted to regain prominence in the party after the disaster of the Great Leap Forward. So he called for this continuous struggle, you know, this where we get one of his famous quotes, there's great chaos under heaven, the situation is excellent, and for continuous struggle against the bourgeoisie. But once again, without actually renovating these core inequities. So again and again throughout Mao's career, you see him instigating revolution, but then saying, no, not like that. Calling for an uprising, but then saying, no, but really what we're talking about is just a few bad apples in the party, not the structure of the party as such. And really, there was already so much pent-up frustration and anger because of the dispossession of rural workers while the cadres in the party were closing ranks. And all of that spilled over into the Cultural Revolution, which is extremely complicated, and I'm still learning about it myself. But it was the basis for the market reforms that arose after because it was such a disaster. You had so many different factions, each of which were accusing the, the others of being reactionary and counter-revolutionary, while we are the true heirs to Mao's revolution. And ultimately, the upshot of all that bloodshed was the market reforms, because in the aftermath, when Mao finally died, Deng Xiaoping said, we've got to treat capitalism like the canary in the cage. We've got to be pragmatic. We've got to move forward. And there was this sense, like we had a traumatized society in China that just wanted to move on. And I think today, when we see the inequities in China, you know, not wholly, but in no small part, we can attribute a lot of the reason why there's been such a delay to confront those inequities aggressively is because of the specter of the Cultural Revolution. When you had, and I think a lot of leftists think about it as this sort of like revenge fantasy, this Quentin Tarantino revenge fantasy. I saw this recent news story where this woman decapitated her landlord saying, long live Chairman Mao and some people on the left were cheering that, you know, but you have to understand that it, it was totally directionless. And that's one reason why it's so hard to understand the history, because there were so many factions accusing each other and acting accordingly. So, so those are the few of the big things that I think people need to, to grasp about Mao. And, you know, I get that Mao left a legacy that was genuinely inspiring for a lot of revolutionary movements not least, you know, the Black Panthers. And so I don't want to minimize that. I think what's really important to recognize is Mao started off was ultimately a, a military commander. And the thing about a lot of his aphorisms, like the famous political power flows out of the barrel of a gun, they really can be retrofitted to any political ideology, you know? And because so much of his mystique is about being a, a tactician and talking about guerrilla warfare, it can be, it's easily adapted to anybody who thinks that they are the guerrillas fighting the oppressive government, which happens to characterize, you know, Timothy McVeigh as well as leftists. So I know this is going to probably tick a lot of people off, but I think we have to recognize that that is part of what we're talking about when we talk about the history of the PRC. And one of the reasons why I wrote the open letter the way that I did is because I believe the right shouldn't have a monopoly on these issues, that there needed to be, there needs to be a critique of China that doesn't depend on xenophobia. 
because there's more than one empire at work in the world, to put it shortly. Wow, thank you for that. That's I know I kind of like spewed a lot right there, but I hope no, that that no. was, you know. No, that was great perspective. It seems that from what you're saying, that Mao's regime really suffered from a problem that many, if not most authoritarian communists and socialist projects suffered from is the inability to really deconstruct and get rid of those fundamental social relations, right, that are yeah. at the root human suffering, right? To get rid of the domination, the hierarchy, right? The paternalistic instinct in human beings to command or obey, right? Or, I mean, and just in, ended up becoming a new ruling class. It was the same thing with the Bolsheviks. It's always unfortunate, but, you know, the writing is on the wall, right? With a lot of yeah. this stuff. Yeah, it always sucks, but... And this is all stuff just... that, that people like Emma Goldman and Kropotkin were talking about in the night. Like, they saw, yeah. you know, the problems yeah. that would arise with an extremely dogmatic variant of Marxism. I mean, people have to understand, there were literally hymns with lines like, a great savior has arisen, Mao the savior. I know that the right has sort of hijacked discussion of the cult of Mao, but, like, I think calling it a cult is not inappropriate. And you're right, that is fundamental to authoritarian brands of Marxism. Yeah, a lot of those authoritarian movements subscribe to a sort of, you know, a great man theory of history and are just, in that sense, totally, really diametrically opposed to any sort of anarchist, anti-authoritarian or autonomous thought, right? Because for us, it's really about everyone being empowered it's about true, direct democracy where everyone becomes empowered and has autonomy and has equal input into the decision-making process and ultimately has say-so in how their society is to be organized and to be ran. And that's just totally diametrically opposed to authoritarian communism. And that's something, like you said, that figures like Bakunin, I mean, like his work, I believe it's Marxism, Freedom in the State, where he basically predicts the rise of Stalin and Stalinism, and it takes, you know, decades before it ever even happened. But let's, so thank you for that. And so maybe to jump into a more contemporary reality is, could you talk a bit about the Hong Kong protests? And what are, in your opinion, again, some misconceptions about the nature of the protests, the nature of the protesters themselves? Because I know, again, there are so many factions down there, some of which are left, some of which are reactionary sort of nationalist types. Yeah. Could you get into that? And what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, well, yeah, thank you for asking. And it is one of the ways that my personal story intersects with what's happening in Asia right now is that my mother is from Hong Kong. I visited Hong Kong. The last time I was there was 1994, three years before the handover. So I have long had a, a, a deep investment, as many diasporic Cantonese people do, in what's happening in Hong Kong. The long and short of it is, you already had a gathering protest movement that began in 2014 with Occupy Central protesting, widening inequalities and encroaching authoritarianism from the mainland. But really in 2019, what sparked the new round of protests was the advent of a proposed security law that basically was proposing giving the PRC government the right to extradite anybody that it, it wanted. For a long time, 
the slogan in Hong Kong was one country, two systems, that for 50 years after the colony was handed back from Britain, that Hong Kong's autonomy would be respected. And in this law, there was just like a very blatant revising of those terms. So people were upset. And that was, it it sort of lit a match because, you know, for a long time, you already had such widening inequality. Hong Kong is, is one of the finance capitals of the world. And it's a city in which corporations, you know, are legally, they literally handpick representatives to, to serve on what's called the legislative council. So all of that is the backdrop for these protests, you know, which is why when a lot of le- Western leftists will either say things like, uh, obviously the most patently absurd one is that it's all a CIA psyop. Not only is that giving way too much power to, to the CIA, but it's, it's just it radically diminishing and misunderstanding the frustrations that have been there for a long time, which we're not really being given voice to. The radical inequality, the fact that living space is in such a short supply in Hong Kong. So you had all these people coming into the street to protest, some, many of whom who had never protested before, many of whom had never been radicalized or politicized in any way before. So inevitably, what happened was there were, was going to be people who didn't have any much of an ideology to speak of beyond our lives suck, right? And we want them to suck less. And in that ferment, you know, who are people in Hong Kong? Some contingent is going to look to people abroad who claim to be invested in their struggle, which is why you inevitably had some contingent turning to Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. And again, one of the reasons why I wrote this open letter was because I felt it was imperative to take back this issue from the Ted Cruz's and Josh Hawley's who are preying on really the desperation of so many of these protesters. Now, you know, that being said, I don't like, I want to make clear that the whole protest movement is not composed of Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley stands. There's this collective Laosan that's been doing great work in, they have a, a webzine looking at the Hong Kong politics from an anarchist perspective. They recently ran an interview with an anarchist collective in Hong Kong called Black Window, which is the reincarnation of another restaurant called So, I think it was So Boring, that had this really innovative, unpriced restaurant for a while. So the national security law has already been passed, but I think what people need to understand is that there's still stuff going on on the ground, despite the overwhelming odds that are faced. People are still trying to organize. People are still trying to live lives of autonomy and agency and freedom, freedom from any state control, you know, be it the PRC or representatives of the GOP. And I think this is really where an internationalist perspective that prioritizes solidarity with oppressed and exploited workers around the world, not just whatever superpower happens to be on your team, is so important. And I really think that rather than sort of sitting back and scoffing at the Trump supporters who are part of, and they, you know, I don't want to diminish the reality of that. And it, it, it does suck. It's really unfortunate and frustrating for, for leftists who are talking to Trump supporters and, and GOP supporters in Hong Kong. But I think the, the answer for the left is not to sort of cast off or write off the entire movement over there, because if you're doing that, you're consigning, you're cutting off the possibility of solidarity. Chanel, Victor, do y'all have 
Any questions, any input? Yeah, I, hey everybody. I hadn't, I didn't even say hello earlier anyway. <laughs> As you know. I wanted to ask just to paint even more of a picture of like how the state control looks in Hong Kong. Yeah. So after the national security law was passed, which, like I said, it reduced Hong Kong's judicial autonomy. It created a legal pretext for open season on activists. Over 100 people have been arrested. There's this really big newspaper, Apple Daily, that was forced to close. Now, again, is Apple Daily perfect? Is it like champion of the proletariat? No, but it's still an index of, of how life has, has fundamentally changed. I think Demetrius saw this. I retweeted there's a, an ad for a kindergarten that was making the rounds. So this is five-year-olds. Oh, yeah. And, you know, yeah, that was hard. It is an ad. That, and, that, and it, it, it almost is, brought me to tears. It, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, it's a kindergarten that's advertising itself as the ideal factory for churning out tiny little patriots. And it's this... Mm you know, patriot porn stuff where these little kids are walking in a Chinese flag and there's this swelling orchestral music and they're hoisting the flag in the classroom. And by the way, you could see on the faces of these kids, they have no idea what is going on. And I don't blame them. They're just like, what are we even doing? And that is sort of a distillation of the attitude or the ethos that has prevailed in Hong Kong. And you know, there is a clampdown now. There, the Chinese government did not react kindly to Biden's recent announcement that he was going to allow Hong Kongers to be able to stay in the U.S. for up to 18 months. And they made their displeasure known. So, yeah, there, there has absolutely been a tightening of the net. And the thing is that you have to understand that there are, much like in the States where there is an affinity between like the police and sort of like the right-wing patriots, like either they're literally in the Proud Boys themselves and they might be Proud Boy adjacent, right? There's a similar kind of dynamic in Hong Kong. So not only do you have police, but you know, you will, there will also be very much pro-police types. And there was a, another infamous incident during the protest, the 2019 Yuen Long incident, where triad gang members assaulted protesters, and it looks a lot like they did so in conjunction with the cops. So, yeah, you know, we were talking before the podcast about police brutality, and I think there is another issue where it's so important to see the international connections between the use of police force in Hong Kong and and the use of police force in America. Yeah, the parallels between the so when within Hong Kong the police are going after folks with divergent political views yeah like I said there have been these mass arrests under the terms of the new law those who are arrested can be denied bail there was a trial of someone who was charged under the law there was no jury and it provides the legal pretext for doing what the police sort of wanted to do for a long time before Gotcha. And I guess that leads to what we were kind of bringing up before in terms of just the similarities of the struggle 
the struggles that Black folks face in America and what's being faced in China and Hong Kong, like, so the police brutality kind of stripping yeah. away of rights. Yeah. 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 And, and that was something that on Laosana, there, there was a great article on this. And, and I think a lot of people on the Hong Kong left do feel really passionately about you know, especially those who have ties to what's happening in America, you know, because a lot of us diasporic Chinese, you know, we see that when the same politicians who in the U.S. will explain away or defend a Derek Chauvin or any number of figures like that in recent history, then turn around and say, we stand with Hong Kong, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's the hypocrisy, the bad faith, and the cynicism are so evident. And I think it's important to note that the the Hong Kong police were trained by U.S. cops for several years. Their tactics are taken in no small part from American tactics and strategies. And they, in that sense, it doesn't matter whether the cops are serving a quote-unquote communist government or not, right? Like they are pursuing the same tactics and strategies of treating dissent as though it was, you know, even nonviolent dissent as criminal. I'm wanting to, you know, grow even more in my understanding of what's happening internationally. And so just really taking in, you know, what you're saying, Lucas, and like how this is happening without blackness at the forefront, you know? Yeah. Well, there is also, you know, I do want to be clear that, you know, there are racial tensions in Hong Kong as well. A lot of sort of people in the service industry, there's a growing migrant class from South Asia, from India. And there have been also instances of racially motivated racist police brutality as well in Hong Kong, perpetrated by the Hong Kong uh, police force against people for whom their distance from the racial norm correlates to, you know, being in a lower class position in society and being more vulnerable to abuse. So yeah, that's great that you asked that because I think that's that's important for, for a lot of people to understand on the left in America. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Lucas. That's insane. Just I mean, the cops everywhere are literally just the same. But it's just it's just funny. Maybe you could talk a little bit about this, about the whole sort of tanky. Normally it's coming from the tanky crowd, especially online. They're always throwing the accusations this, you know, these people are CIA plants, right, that are causing the ruckus. And it's just funny to me yeah. how someone can be ad cab, right, all cops are bastards one minute, then the next, you know, except yeah. for Chinese cops, except for Cuban right. cops, except for Russian cops. It's just, it's just I feel just like funny. the A for some of people stands for American cops, not yeah, all, American. you know. <laughs> American cops. I mean, I mean it's, it's yeah, extraordinary. I, you don't think they got the memo. Yeah. Could you maybe you talk about that? And also, this kind of delves into the next question, but what are some of your thoughts around China being like this central figure in this sort of campus political ideology? And for our listeners who don't know what, what campism is, to kind of give a sort summation of it is basically essentially this this geopolitical position that is the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So essentially you have this this tendency on the left or in certain political circles or factions where they support any sort of nation state or country 
that is commonly seen as being the rival or has declared itself as being a rival of the United States. And that's typically Russia, China, and Cuba. And people proclaim these these sort of countries that are either, you know, state capitalist or just, you know, plain old capitalist to be, you know, communist yeah. states or whatnot. Can you kind of talk about your point of views on that? Because it just seems so, it just seems, it just seems so orientalist, you know, and just yeah, racist and just. No, that's, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's exactly what the first thing that I was going to go to. I think one important factor is this romanticizing of quote unquote the East, you know, and I think that. Arguably, this goes back to before the revolution itself. Before the revolution, there was this book called Red Star Over China. I think it came out in the 30s by this American journalist, Edgar Snow. And he met Mao and the Communist Party, which was holed up in, in Northwest China at the time. You know, they had sort of occupied this territory. And it was a really like a love letter to, to the Chinese Communist Party at the time. It was the first, the arguably the first work of Western pro-CCP propaganda. Because this guy, you know, was absolutely smitten with Mao. Mao was very, was very charming when he wanted to be. They rolled out the red carpet for him, and they sort of he sort of had this bestseller portraying, you know, sort of like Star Wars. You know that the Chinese Communist Party is basically the Rebel Alliance. You know, and I think that from there there has long been a romanticization of China that also I think represents kind of the ghost of the Cold War too. You know, I think we, we shouldn't underestimate the fact that while the left has, you know, certainly grown over the past decade and there's much to celebrate about that, and maybe you guys know about this as well, that the downside is that it's arguably come in a form that tends to center 20th century white leftist perspectives, right? There's a contingent whose sensibilities are indebted to the era of the Cold War with its extremely polar binary thinking, right? And that leads to kind of seeing the world as composed of just these different ideological teams. And you've got the good states over here and the bad states over here. And I'm sure, again, this will probably rankle a lot of people, but in my work with, with about Christian nationalism, I more and more think of modern CCP ideology and really those who are the champions of CCP ideology is having a lot of the same problems as Christian nationalists who are, you know, like way into QAnon. Ultimately, there is this, there's been this explosion of conspiratorial thinking, which as you pointed out, manifests on the left as, oh, you know, this quote unquote communist government is now facing opposition. Well, it's got to be a CIA protest or a CIA PSYOP or whatever, which leads to absurdities like saying that the Myanmar protesters are now being run by the CIA. So people are saying that, you know, I think there are many, several different factors. I, I have heard that. I don't, I do not know that is how um, prevalent, but it's well, you know, but it's really like a logical step once you've already defended Syria or once you've defended or just said that Xinjiang is, I don't know what, like a matter of doctored photographs or something. Oh, then, yeah, the, then, the Uyghur, you know, yeah. It's, it's the, oh, unfortunately, oh. the next step. Wow. Right. Exactly. Or East Turkestan, which was the original name for Xinjiang before it was colonized, right? In in right. Uh, under <laughs> under the the last dynasty. Wow. Yeah, so 
And the last thing I'll say about campism is inevitably it leads to being intertwined with statism. It just ends up championing the centralization of power when it comes to the states on your team, you know? And I think that's a real shame. And Lucas, you kind of touched on it a little bit in their previous question. Some people will say that, and and I think there is a, a bit of agreement on this, that the Chinese government is colonialist and imperialist. So some examples of that that people point to are like China's purchasing of land in Africa and in the Caribbean. People also point to the decades-long occupation of Tibet by the Chinese government. What are some of your thoughts and some of your stances on that? And and because you already touched on it a little bit with the horrible oppression of the Uyghur peoples. Can you get into that a bit? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, with Tibet, sums it up. I just learned this. October 1st, 1949, Mao declares the PRC's establishment in Tiananmen Square. January 1st, 1950, the PRC declares national sovereignty over Tibet. Like almost immediately at the beginning of the People's Republic of China, you know, this was not like a a secondary peripheral action. This was one of the first things that it did was to assert its sovereignty over Tibet. So I think it's important to see what's happening today in the Caribbean, in Africa, as, again, in historical context. And, you know, I'm going to read you a quote from a politician in the 60s. If we can take the Congo, we can have all of Africa. That is Mao Zedong himself speaking in 1964 about his ambitions for China in Africa. And of course, he was thinking, wow. you know, we can quote unquote have <laughs> wow. Africa in the name of the communist revolution. But what they exported can only be described as evangelism, you know, for Mao as the captain of the world revolution. Now, the situation today is quite different. I think it is worth talking about Xi Jinping in connection with Mao. I think it's worth acknowledging the important differences between these two figures. I think it's also important to clear up. Again, to recuperate discussion of this issue from the right, from the Mike Pompeos and the people who are talking about what China's doing in Africa and Caribbean as if they have suddenly invented colonialism. A lot of infrastructures, projects, on one hand, you know, they are, a lot of them are completed by, by African workers. And so there is some measure of job training and in contract negotiations between African countries and the Chinese Export-Import Bank. There has been some real economic growth, but I think what's particularly important, especially for those who would sort of lionize China as a champion of communism, there's huge debt issues. Beijing owns about half of Angola's debt, the majority of Kenya's debt. Kenya's debt increased tenfold since 2013. I'm just reading some stats here. And so these are real, real problems. Djibouti is another country that's under debt distress right now. And so, again, you know, we have to look at the actual social relations. Just as we ask with capitalism, the fundamental question is, is value being extracted from workers? Really, we do have to ask whether it's in Africa or in Tibet or in Uyghur, are the social relations those of either quote-unquote, soft colonialism or just straight-up colonialism. And also important to recognize Xinjiang, 
One of the people involved in Xinjiang is a familiar face to people on the left. Eric Prince of Blackwater is involved in doing security in East Turkestan. It is an extension of his, you know, it seems like a lifelong crusade. Eric Prince founded Blackwater. Blackwater was in Iraq. He's said to have this idea of a crusade against Islam, having come from a, a hardcore conservative Christian family. And so it was kind of a natural jump for him to go from oppressing Muslims for America to oppressing Muslims for the PRC. And I guess just one more thing that sort of illustrates what I'm talking about. There's this very popular Chinese blockbuster movie, Wolf Warrior. You might've heard of it. It's like this basically Rambo for the PRC, this action movie. And I think the second one, I think that's the one, is just pure, instead of white savior, it's Chinese savior. I think that the plot is is kind of rescuing kids in Africa from, this time from US military forces. And it's kind of absurd because they're just sort of renovating all the 80s action movie tropes, but kind of transplanting them to a Chinese context. So I, I guess if it wasn't clear already, I absolutely think that we need to talk about China as a colonial power today. Thank you so much for that answer, because there are so many, again, people on the more authoritarian side of the left who are just making excuses for essentially what would seem to be colonialist yeah. behavior out of the Chinese state. But we apologize. We're having some bit of a technical difficulties, but Comrade Victor here is sending a few questions that he wanted to ask. So given what you said about Mao's quotation about power emerging from the barrel of a gun, what do you think are the future prospects of revolutionary violence as a tool of liberation, particularly given that military regimes seem to so readily grow out of organized violent uprisings? Obviously, we in this org are fans of dual power, but that would seem to presuppose having a society that is nominally free enough to allow for that kind of alternative organization. And he also asks, with regard to Hong Kong, do you find that Hong Kongers are less likely to consider left ideologies because of China's example? How do you think Hong Kong's status as a product of British colonialism ideologically impacts the prospects for Hong Kong seeing a future that is neither neoliberal or left authoritarian? Yeah, well, thanks so much, Victor. I mean, these are great questions that I've definitely been thinking about, and I don't want to pretend that I've arrived at you know, any kind of final answer on either one of them. The thing about Mao's quotation is, on one level, it's kind of hard to deny, right? Just as a basic description. And I think that's part of why his sayings were so powerful. I think the danger is taking truncated and romanticized picture of 20th century revolutionary movements and trying to project it onto where we are right now. You know, I'm gonna be honest, I have been on a journey from sort of like a sort of reflexive pacifism towards understanding that violence has always been intertwined with the struggle for liberation. At the same time, absolutely what you're saying, the extent to which military regimes seem to so readily grow violent uprisings is it's really hard to dispute. You know, I was just reading about Robert Mugabe, who was another fan of Mao and vice versa. And I think for me, what I think 
we've got to be aware of at the moment is the way that a lot of right-wing militias are seeing an opportunity to rebrand themselves as populists or as, you know, Nazbols in the parlance. This guy, Matthew Heimbach, who is one of the most infamous neo-Nazis, is going through this renovation of his image right now and trying to be like, basically like Josh Hawley, but with guns. Josh Hawley, but with violence. And I think what is troubling to me at this moment is that I think that that is resonating with a lot of people who have not thought through what tends to happen when people on the far left look for strategic opportunities to partner with people on the far right. And I think that that oversight, for lack of a better word, is perhaps attributable to the fact that we haven't really thought enough about the place of violence and what we want violence to achieve and whether you can you can safely say, okay, sure, like the Proud Boys seem to hate the cops, we hate the cops, all right. And I don't know how many people think that way, but I do think like there has to be an ongoing discussion of that dilemma about Hong Kong and whether Hong Kongers are less likely to consider left ideologies because of China's example. It's really hard for me to say. I don't want to, I would hesitate to kind of speak for Hong Kongers as a monolith. I will say there's a great interview with this anarchist collective Black Window that's on Laosan, L-A-U-S-A-N.hk, their website right now that you should check out that kind of gives insight into at least one anarchist's collective's view of the situation on the ground right now. I do think that there are definitely still opportunities, but those opportunities are what we make of it, right? I think whether or not Hong Kongers find some kind of identification with the left is contingent on so many factors. And one of them is whether the diasporic Chinese community can reach out and form those alliances, not on the basis of this rah, 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 American, you know, BS, which sadly is what a lot of diasporic Chinese have opted for. But yeah, on the basis of left principles that reject both authoritarianism in its you know, PRC guys and in its GOP guys. So yeah, I know it's a very long answer. For me, it's kind of a complicated situation, but I do have hope. But from my perspective, that hope is intertwined with how the diaspora responds. No, those, those were great answers. Thank you so much for that, Lucas. So we want to be respectful of your time. I know we ran quite a bit over for you. So I guess the last thing that I was going to ask is what are some just a main point that you like Western leftists who are thinking about China, who are talking about China, who want to be in solidarity with the Chinese struggle for liberation? What is something that's on your heart that you want to let them know that you think is important at this time? Yeah. So like I said, I'm, I'm going to do one more plug for this open letter, which is was grew out of seeing anti-Asian racism in America. I would really emphasize, going back to what Martin Luther King said about a single garment of destiny, that to the degree that the left offers an alternative to the right's critique of China, it stands to gain real allies and gain a real listening ear from both diaspora Chinese as well as people in China who are disillusioned with the PRC government. 
On the other hand, to the extent that the left engages in apologias for China, for the PRC, for Mao's legacy, that to me is a real problem and contributes to the great power competition that's already underway. And I would say that I do think there are a lot of leftists out there who sincerely do care about anti-Asian racism, but might not be sure what they think about China or might even feel reflexively defensive of China. And so I would say that in opposing the PRC does not mean siding with the GOP and still less does it mean selling out other Asians. In fact, to oppose the PRC is part and parcel of standing with exploited and dispossessed Asians in Asia, in China, as well as in America. So that is my entreaty for people on the left to see how these issues can't be neatly separated. Lucas, thank you so, so much for that. That was awesome. This has been a great conversation. Please let people know where they can find you online, where they can find your work and interact with you. Yeah, for sure. So you can find the open letter at www.againstchristianxenophobia.com. There's some exciting things happening right now. I'm going to be posting a few updates, including some music-related stuff from my other project, which we didn't get into. I didn't even get into, but I, I'm also a musician in a band. You can find at brotherkmusic.com as well. But I welcome signatories. I welcome responses. I welcome people who want to join me in the demands of the open letter. And thank you so much for this opportunity to speak to you and to talk to you, Chanel and Victor. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Thank you so, so much, much, Lucas. It's been very enlightening. Yes, Thank absolutely. You. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. And we just wanted to make sure that we platform the Chinese voice to talk about this very delicate topic. It was very informative and educational. But thank you all so much for listening to this episode of A Thousand Cuts. Thank you so much for the support. Thank you so much for the love. Hopefully y'all continue to support us after this episode because we're probably going to be fucking raided by tanks. <laughs> but, uh, you know, thank y'all so much. Y'all know where to find us. Y'all know where to get the podcast. We are SoundCloud on Spotify and on Apple. Thank you so much for listening. Again, this has been A Thousand Cuts BSA Podcast. I'm your host, Demetrius. Here are my comrades and co-hosts, Chanel and Victor, and our awesome guest, Lucas. We will talk to y'all later. Take care. Peace.